0: Welcome to Green Bull Radio. I'm your host, Kendall Tichner. On the show, we share how notable leaders apply environment, social, and governance factors in business. Kaylee Taylor is a sustainable development professional and social entrepreneur who has established several new ventures, including a global NGO. Kaylee has worked in areas such as green growth, climate change management and NGO leadership. She's currently based in Geneva, Switzerland, where she works with the International Institute for Sustainable Development and the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals Lab. In this episode, we discuss the sustainable development goals and some of the innovative work the United Nations is doing to create global cohesion to tackle some of the world's most challenging issues. Thanks for joining us today, Kaylee. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's get started. Tell
1: us about you. So I am from a small town in Alberta called Hanna, about two hours outside of Calgary. Uh, I grew up there and then I moved to Calgary for university where I then got into the energy industry and kind of started my passion in the uh, sustainability field. I after working for a time in the energy industry, moved into NGOs. So I started an NGO with three friends from university, or there's three of us total, I should say, with two friends, three total. Um, And after running that for quite some time and having a lot of fun doing it, I decided to uh, move to Europe. And now I'm living here and working on a whole bunch of cool projects still related to sustainability, but not specifically focused on energy and climate, more broad and
0: more focused on the overall uh, picture of sustainable development. Great. So you you kind of answered this in your intro, but how exactly did you get into the sustainability world, um, especially so early in your career?
1: Yeah. So I I got my first job in the energy industry when I was nineteen. So I was I was super young, and I I, I really did fall in love with the energy industry. I found it to be you know, this kind of lifeline of society that enabled so much productivity. And I thought it was such an interesting industry. But I also was very troubled by, I guess, what we were doing to our planet in order to get energy. Um, and I felt that it was crucial we found solutions that allowed people to develop and um, have a good quality of life and be productive while also of course, being within our planetary boundaries and respecting the environment. So after working in the energy industry for some time, I, I felt that it was necessary to create spaces for young people in particular to have a voice. And that's when my um, good friends and I created Student Energy, which is a global not-for-profit that builds the next generation of energy leaders. And we you know, through that experience of building something as you said, quite young um I think we we saw how important it is that young people are involved in shaping the future, and um yeah, I guess I never looked back after uh, putting a toe in it it was really apparent that sustainability was the space for me,
0: great, and yeah, you made a, a huge impact in in your work with student energy because that's that's how you and i initially connected so um, yes. <laughs> so i guess pivoting a little bit into the work that you are doing now corporate alignment with un sustainability goals is becoming a trend on esg reporting can you provide an overview of the sustainable development goals absolutely so the 2030 agenda or the SDGs, the
1: Sustainable Development Goals, is a global agenda adopted by all 193 member states of the United Nations. So that means like every single country has agreed to this framework, which is very rare in the international arena. Um, And I think the reason all countries agree to it is because it's a very balanced perspective on sustainable development. It includes environmental sustainability, but also social sustainability and economic sustainability. So those three dimensions, balancing them and ensuring that we create the future we want. That's the kind of tagline. So it's made up of 17 sustainable development goals. The agenda is um, they span everything from Eliminating poverty, to achieving gender equality, uh, saving biodiversity, combating climate change, having sustainable economies, good governance—I mean, it's very far-reaching. And under those goals, there's 169 targets and over 230 indicators for measuring progress. But really, at the country level, I think that's important to note when we're talking about ESG. This was a, a framework developed for countries. And um, and maybe just two other really quick things about it. It's it applies to every country. So it's not targeted at just developing countries or just developed countries. It's really a framework that applies to all countries. And it's also inclusive of all kind of sectors of society. So that also includes business, but NGOs, business, academia, governments, you know, It's supposed to span all sectors of society. So it's far-reaching and ambitious. um, And, you know, I think worth saying with COVID right now, very difficult to achieve, but I would say crucial that we do achieve it.
0: Yeah, it's definitely, um, we're at a, a pivotal point, I think, to start making these decisions and developing strategies to start moving towards those goals. Um, and I really liked your comment about um, integrating the economic piece into into sustainability um, because I think oftentimes that piece can be um, forgotten so um, it's a definitely a really robust way of of approaching a lot of the the world's biggest issues mm-hmm. so how are companies measuring their progress towards achieving sustainable development goals?
1: yeah I think this is a a tough question because the the i think with any new thing and the the short answer is that there's just so many ways to to do this and there's no standard way which actually makes it quite difficult so as i mentioned the framework is built for countries so all the indicators within that framework are are built for a country to measure them with statistical systems or some other kind of agreed upon indicator and way of measuring But that doesn't exist for companies. So I think what we're seeing a lot of right now is good intentions on one hand and people and companies and financial institutions wanting to um, be utilizing the SDGs and be contributing towards the achievement of the SDGs. But also, on the other hand, SDG washing or rainbow washing um, and this difficulty in in actually ensuring that something is, quote unquote sustainable. So I think there's a lot of different projects that are looking at this very issue. Um, the impact management project is one that I would highlight. but then there's, of course a whole array of measurement projects that focus on maybe specific um, very specific dimensions of sustainability. So the answer is there's no standard way. I think every con- uh, company is trying to figure it out, as is every country. Um, and I, I think that where we're at now is this landscape of a whole bunch of ideas and processes and frameworks that are um, popping up. And what will probably end up happening is a few of those will, will gain traction and likely some of them will even become um, mandatory or they will become... You know, reporting that needs to be done and therefore they will become more standardized. But at the moment, it's a bit of the Wild West.
0: I like your, your comment of rainbow washing. I haven't heard that one before, but I, I assume that's taking all of the different goals because they truly are the colors of the rainbow and uh, kind of using, trying to appear as though you're addressing each of the Uh, sustainable development goals in your report is kind of what you're calling rainbow washing. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, So you're a project officer at the International Institute for Sustainable Development. Can you tell us about your work here?
1: Yeah, so IISD is a actually Canadian based think tank that focuses on sustainable development. It was one of the first institutions with sustainable development in its title and so has always had this um, piece about integrating integrated sustainability, so social, environmental, and economic coming together in, in its mission and mandate. And at IISD, I work on a whole host of projects, mostly with partners on advancing sustainability. Um, so one of the examples is I work with UN on the SDG lab, which I think we'll probably get into a little bit later. But focusing on how we encourage innovation and collaboration around the SDGs. I'm also doing a lot of work on sustainable finance right now and how we accelerate the transition to a sustainable finance system, particularly with actors in Switzerland, but also more broadly. Uh, so at IASD in a kind of average day, I'm, I'm quite focused on um, building collaboration between Actors who don't usually work together, because I think that's what's required if we're going to create the solutions to the very difficult challenges that we have. So what's
0: what's a day in the life like for you?
1: Essentially, I spend a lot of time in meetings right now on Zoom previously in person, Um working with all these different actors to understand how they're progressing things. And essentially I'm a project manager. So trying to move good ideas that come up out of these different collaborations into, into action. So on a daily basis, I'm doing a lot of uh, meeting with people, a lot of writing and proposals and things that are going to move these initiatives forward, getting a lot of people on side, uh, talking to people who are coming from different perspectives to try and understand how we can find those, that common ground to build um, these projects that I think can unlock more of the
0: potential of the SDGs. And much of your work centers around collaboration between sustainable development and financial communities. So can you elaborate on, on this? Yeah,
1: this is one of my favorite pieces of work that I'm, I'm doing at the moment and that I will continue to do um, more so in the next year is one of the things that became very apparent when we started working um, on innovation and collaboration around the SDGs was that a huge challenge is the resources to realize sustainable development. You know, where money goes, things happen. And what we were hearing consistently from countries, from organizations, UN organizations, NGOs, academic institutions even was, you know, we have great projects. We have great company, or we know great companies who are working in these spaces, but we are not able to mobilize the resources needed to make these things happen. And then on the other side, when we started talking to the financial community, we were hearing our clients want sustainable f- products. We, they want sustainable funds that they can invest in. But we can't find the projects, which made us realize, I think, very quickly that there's something not connecting. And what I've come to realize is, is this is just in a, a large way, a, a clash of cultures and incentives and different worlds coming together. The finance industry has completely different incentive structures, completely different motives, completely different ways of operating than, let's say, UN entities or NGOs, um, and also different objectives in what they're trying to achieve. However, I think now it's becoming so clear and apparent that having sustainability embedded in financial systems makes them more resilient and makes them perform better. So it's becoming a business imperative to ensure that these systems are sustainable. And so a lot of the work I'm doing now is focused on how we create that sustainability in these systems with both the sustainable development community those whose primary focus is on delivering social or environmental outcomes and the financial sector whose primary primarily profit driven or, or economically focused
0: that's really fascinating work um, I, I know I'm going to be following along to see the the progress that you're making on on this topic and I've noticed so many, companies trying to not only integrate ESG right now, but the financial piece, I'm noticing there's a lot more chatter about that, um, especially this year. Mm-hmm. So which countries seem to be making the most progress towards achieving SDGs?
1: I think this question is is a tough one in that, the, as I mentioned at the beginning, the SDGs are universal and they apply to all countries, but they they recognize that every country is going to take a different approach. Um, so I think it's very important that instead of focusing on individual countries, we focus on maybe the the most vulnerable groups of society and how they're advancing in certain contexts. So I'll give you an example. A lot of, a lot, a lot of people would say that Canada is a, is a high performer on sustainability. Generally, you know, good social systems, pretty, robust regulatory environment, for example. But at the end of the day, we're only um, as strong as how our most vulnerable communities are treated and how sustainable they are. And we we know that there are Indigenous communities, for example, without access to clean drinking water or health care or good health services, these types of things. So Actually, um, my challenge for everyone who's looking at the SDGs is is not to think about the SDGs as like which countries are performing better, but more to look at every country about where its shortcomings are. And, you know, the, the group that always gets brought up is actually the Nordics. And the Nordics are, you know, of course, high performers on sustainability. But they've taken that as a challenge to look at their broader impact in the world. And I recently was in Finland, well, before the pandemic, so I guess it wasn't that recent. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Over a year ago, I was in Finland, and they were talking about how they have, instead of just focusing on their sustainable development plans in the country, they've now began to do analysis on how their way of life has impacts across you know all the places that are related to their supply chain, where they get their energy, where they get their goods, where etc. etc. So I think it's a bit counterproductive to try and figure out which countries are the highest performing. And what's a better approach is to try and have every country learn from what other ones are doing well, and uh, and also to to recognize that. Even, you know, some of the poorest countries on the planet have very valuable insights about how to achieve sustainable development because they come at it from a totally different perspective. So it's one of the things I like about the agenda, that it, it puts everyone on this kind of equal footing. And it's not meant to be competitive, but more like this thing that is an overarching framework we can envision we can all try and achieve
0: and learn from each other while doing that's very well articulated, the reminder to lift, lift each other up. Um, we're all sharing this, this planet, so I, I really like the way that you said that. Um, so pivoting a little bit towards your home country, uh, Canada has some of the most progressive ESG initiatives in the world, but we're not always recognized as such. How are Canadian ESG initiatives viewed in Europe?
1: Yeah, this is an interesting question because I have to admit that I didn't know Canada has some of the most uh, progressive, as you mentioned, ESG initiatives. And sometimes I'm not even clear on what counts as an ESG (laughs) initiative more broadly because ESG is such a a, a far reaching term. But what I would say is I think Canada is seen as generally as an ally to most countries who are trying to advance social and environmental in- initiatives. Um, I think that the EU is seen as a huge leader on the on the green front, particularly in the financial space with the, the new EU taxonomy around uh, a green financial system. I think that this is something that I I've heard Canada is trying to um, replicate or adapt to its own context, which I think is extremely positive. So. I do think it's normal that every country kind of in a way becomes a bit focused on its own financial system or its own financial players. Uh, But as you said, it's, it's a global world where everything's connected. So it's important to be aware of what others are doing. So I, I think that Canada is seen as a, as an ally and uh, I think a strong player, but I, I, because as I've been in Europe for a while and didn't realize that there were these initiatives that you mentioned, I think it shows that maybe we're not as boastful as we could be potentially.
0: <laughs> yeah, and so I, I think on that note, because one of the sentiments that I've I've noticed is um, and perhaps it's just Canadians being humble about about this. Um, But how can North American companies more effectively communicate their ESG strategies and accomplishments to a European audience?
1: Yeah, I would say that this wouldn't necessarily be specific to a European audience, but just more generally what's good practice in the space is just having a really strong impact management uh, process. Because... One thing that I think I focus on a lot in my work is moving beyond ESG to SDGs because ESG to me, or the way I think about it, is very much about the way a company works internally. So that is uh, how you measure environmental, social, and governance factors of, let's say, a company, whereas SDGs focus on the impact something has in the world. And so, you know, you could have a company who is absolutely scoring out of the park on these ESG factors, but the impact that they're having, whatever their type of business is, or, um, you know, like take, for example, a tobacco company, you could have a tobacco company who is engaging local farmers, has women on the board, uh, has an impeccable governance structure, pays everyone fairly. you know, doesn't engage in any human rights abuses, make sure that everyone is treated fairly, has incredible environmental management practices. But at the end of the day, their product is something that makes people sick, that that has negative health impacts. So I would say that if Canadian companies or any companies want to really think about where they fit in a sustainable world, they... Absolutely should look at their internal ESG, um, their internal systems around environmental, social and governance, but also really think about the impact and um, role that they play in a broader society and what that role is going to look like over time, thinking about the future, because we have over, what, seven and a half billion people on this planet. We just faced a global pandemic that showed so Clearly, how interconnected our systems are, and how one, um, you know, there's ripple effects from one system to the other. So, it's very important, I think, for companies to be thinking beyond ESG and thinking about impact and building systems that allow them to track that, manage that. And I think eventually, I think I do believe it's coming, legally report on that. I do think this will become financial disclosure one day. At this point, it's, it's mostly voluntary, but I think that's the direction we're headed.
0: Yeah, I think, well, as you mentioned, some of the, the externalities are not often considered by, by companies and <clears throat> I have to say, you completely shifted for me hearing you speak, how I now kind of view ESG and SDGs in the sense that ESG is more of um, those internal controls and processes and SDGs is more of the impact um, externally. Um, So yeah, I, you completely shifted the way that I'm viewing those things now. So thanks for articulating that so, so well.
1: And maybe if I just add there that, of course, the way you operate internally has impacts in the world as well, right? Like if you Mm -hmm. are, for example, what's very uh, common in, in Canada, if you're an oil and gas producer, and you're thinking about your environmental performance of your products. So reducing inputs uh, and the the GHG emissions uh, surrounded with producing it. I mean, that's a good step. But at the end of the day, I, I imagine these companies are thinking about the fact that their product inherently is carbon that cannot go into the atmosphere or will need to come out of the atmosphere. And so what that looks like for them as an impact in the long run so, of course, both are necessary, but it is very important that we delineate the, the difference between the two.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and also how you articulated what the Nordic countries are, are doing in the sense that they're kind of looking beyond their own borders and looking at their full value chains to understand what, what their impact is and, and how they can mitigate that and, and kind of lift everyone that they touch up somehow. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. so, It seems that they're probably kind of the the group to look to for um, how things how what people should be essentially striving to to achieve. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, So so the SDG lab is a, a multi stakeholder initiative that contributes to the implementation of SDGs. Can you tell us about your work as an advisor with the SDG lab?
1: So the SDG Lab is um, an initiative in the United Nations, and so I'm an external advisor coming from IASD. I've been with the lab since it started in 2017, and the lab focuses on, I think, three fundamental paradigms. The first is integration, which is a big word for saying approaching things in systems, not just focusing on a singular silo or area, but thinking systemically about the way we implement policy and solutions. The second is collaboration, recognizing that we have to do things together and we can't do them alone and that we're stronger with diverse um, views and also diverse expertise from different types of actors. And then finally, innovation or focusing on how we create transformative solutions that Go against the grain and, and, well, not always, I guess, or scale what's working, but but that try and be transformative in what we create. So thinking about the world in different ways, as opposed to being limited by incremental thinking. So the lab tries to encourage that amongst, it's, it's, it's based here in Geneva and focused on the actors that are here in Geneva. The... Uh, Geneva community has over 700 NGOs over 35 UN entities uh, a whole host of I think over 170 180 missions of that represent different countries It's, it's it's got a huge number of these actors in a very small kind of like 10 block radius so it's it's focused on how we leverage the expertise that's here, whether it be the World Health Organization and all the health-related actors like Gavi and the Global Fund to UN Water and the World Meteorological Organization working on climate to UN Environment working on green economy. You know, there's all of these diverse organizations that have their own mandates, but it's so important that they talk to each other and, and develop systemic solutions. And they absolutely are, are doing that with the lab tries to create a safe space to experiment more and and do
0: that in new ways great um and so uh you you touched on this a little bit earlier in our conversation but uh earlier in your career you were the co-founder and the executive director of student energy can you tell us about your your work here
1: yeah so i'm still on the board of student energy i'm the board chair and it's, I mean, it's my baby. Uh, <laughs> it's it's in college now, but it's <laughs> it's my baby still. So, student energy is is a, a a really fantastic organization that has been built by the work and contribution of so many young people all over the world. So, I really can't take much credit for it. But what I will say is. I think the approach that student energy is taking to the future of our energy system is really important. So we have a theory of change that centers on two pillars, one which is creating young leaders and the other that is creating the space for youth to act. So on the creating young leader side, it's all about building the capacity, network, value structure of young people so that they're well prepared to make a change in the energy and climate system. And then on the Creating Space for Youth to Act, it's about working with established institutions to help them understand and value youth's voice and find very tangible, practical ways to bring that voice, experience, outlook into their own work. And over the last two years, the organization has grown immeasurably I you know when I was running it there was two of us maybe three or four of us at maximum now they have a team of 27 they're working with chapters all over the world and I think it really goes to show the power of young people in these uh, spaces and of course you know I'm not ageist I think every generation has something to give what I think is beautiful is when multiple generations work together. So student energy happens to be focused on youth, but the power of youth passion and excitement and new ideas is so strong when it's matched with the experience and wisdom and knowledge of, of older generations. So I'm very proud of the work that student energy does. And I think it's, creating a, a really strong network of people who are ready to dive in and take on these challenges head on, especially when it comes to the energy system. The energy system is, you know, I, I often liken or contrast it to, I should say, the tech technology. You know, in technology, absolutely people who build tech companies, it's it's hard to do, but you know, it's zeros and ones, it's coding. The energy system, to build an energy project, you're talking about so much infrastructure in the ground and huge, huge amounts of upfront capital to do that. And this is a skill set that people gain over their career. And if we're going to transition the energy system, we're going to need young people to have that skill set. So I'm proud that Student Energy is trying to build that skill set in young people so that we can participate sooner in in really constructing the new energy system from the ground up.
0: And so what's the, the age range of, of those involved with student energy? This is a, a question that's actually shifting because, so student
1: energy is focused on post-secondary level students. So 18 to 25-ish. So when people are in university, when they're kind of going through their academic enlightenment and trying new things, that's the age range we focus on. But what's happened is we started in 2009 in Calgary. So we now have what I would say are people in positions that are leadership positions in the industry and they're alumni. So we're also in the in the process right now of, of building out an alumni program, which I think will engage uh, some of the people who are now in their early 30s. Um, so I think it's it's kind of shifting, but... Our primary focus for the majority of
0: our programming is 18 to 25 year olds. Great. Um, And so I guess going a little bit um, macro now, what are some interesting global sustainability trends you're seeing?
1: Yeah, I, I think most of these, to no one's surprise, focus around COVID. So I would like to use this space to just note that we have, a tremendous opportunity with a very big tragedy and a very hard situation. But we have now an opportunity to build back better and to try and use what's happened to be a springboard to a better future. But I think it's worth noting that there are threats to that. And there's been a lot of good work done, Um, the Green Stimulus Index or the Energy Policy Tracker done by IISD Uh, looked at how much of stimulus money has gone into sustainability and for example on the energy policy tracker it showed that double the money has gone to fossil fuels that has gone to clean energy so we are also facing a bit of a a crossroads where are we going to put our resources to build the future that we want so I think one of the big things is Is that, you know, how we build back better and we build systems that are resilient for the future. That is one big trend I'm seeing. Um, I would say another one would be looking at this link between the, our planetary systems and our, on our human health, which I think the pandemic has also put a huge spotlight on, uh. COVID is a, is a zoonotic disease that jumped from people or sorry, from uh, animals to people because of a, illegal wildlife trade uh, essentially. And also we've seen other diseases jump because of loss of habitat. So I think biodiversity, this is a huge year for biodiversity. The convention on biological diversity is set to, uh have its kind of Paris moment, similar to what climate had in 2015 this year in China so I think there's a huge focus on biodiversity and the biosphere and how we protect nature because we need it so much and also because it gives us you know so much joy and happiness as well it's not it's not just about um you know the the more tangible things it gives us I think all of us can relate to just being happy in nature or liking nature so it has a lot to give um, another, another big thing that we're seeing on the, the radar right now as well is we have a huge climate COP coming up um, in November, COP26, and this is where we will up our ambition. And there's also a new focus on climate adaptation, which is scary, but true. We're seeing more uh, impacts from climate change, so we have to not only focus on how we reduce emissions, but also how we help people who are being affected today by uh, climate disasters and uh, issues like droughts. And, you know, it it goes each way. Droughts, flooding, hurricanes. I mean, all of these things are affecting people, will cause migration. So I think that's another thing that we are going to be very aware of this year. Um, And then I would say another trend I'm seeing is just data. Data is all around us with social media and all of these things now where we can... You know, algorithms know what we want. and and yet, I don't think we fully utilize real-time data for decision making and evidence-based policy. So to the degree we could anyway. So I think that this is another big trend is how we harness data to make better decisions and to ensure that the policy action solutions we're putting into effect um, are going to have the best possible impact.
0: So, uh, on that note, how how can people get in touch with or follow you? Sure. So I'm on Twitter
1: at oh I have the worst Twitter handle because I had a, an old one and anyway <laughs> it's it's Kaylee K-A-L-I underscore D underscore Taylor. But probably what's easier is I've recently started a YouTube channel that explains sustainability topics in really simple terms. I only have one video, a new one's coming out tomorrow. Uh, but it's, it's called hippie in a suit, hippie with a Y. So if, uh, anyone wants to check that out, they can, they can reach me there. I, there's a website, hippie as well. Um, so I, I would recommend there because there's a, a form. If anyone wants to talk to me, it's linked to my social
0: media and it's probably the best place to see what I'm thinking about when it comes to sustainability. Perfect. Yeah. I saw you launched your YouTube channel. So I was hoping that, uh, that you would kind of drop, drop a link or a plug there. So <laughs> there's <laughs> a yeah subtle plug. <laughs> yeah. Good timing.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. I still have to watch, uh, watch an episode, but maybe I'll wait until tomorrow when your second one drops and then I'll watch, you know, it's tomorrow. on the SDGs. Perfect. So. <laughs> <laughs> <There you go. laughs> well, I've been looking forward to doing this interview for some time. And I, I know that listeners have to um, I appreciate the opportunity to interview you about the impactful work you're doing with the UN and SDGs, uh, well, and beyond for that matter. So you're, you're doing some really big things in the world. So thanks so much for joining us today, Kaylee. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Green Bull Radio. I'm your host, Kendall Titchener. Please submit guest ideas and ESG-related questions via our social media, at Green Bull Radio, on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thanks for listening.